and welcome to UCD ScholarCast. I'm John Brannigan, series editor. The following lecture in the series The Literatures and Cultures of the Irish Sea is by Professor Damien Walford Davies, Rendell Professor of English at Aberystwyth University in Wales. Archipelagic Cartographies, Brenda Chamberlain's Western Isle. This paper is part of a wider project of literary geography, or to be more precise, literary cartography, namely a book entitled Cartographies of Culture, New Geographies of Welsh Writing in English. It's a study that seeks to open up a dialogue between literature and the social sciences, and offers a response to Christian Jacob's question, what are the links that bind the map to writing? Rejecting the kind of distance reading that uses the literary text merely as a geographical data field from which to extract certain structuralist patterns that are then plotted, Cartographies of Culture sets out to reveal the forms of the cartographic imagination, the embeddedness of material maps in the syntax of writing and reading, and the imminent, not merely pendant, cartographies of literary discourse. To put it differently, the book asks the reader to consider a literary text's map-mindedness in literal and figurative, textual and graphic forms, the ways in which a text triangulates not only the world, but also itself and rehearses specifically cartographic forms of thinking and feeling about space. The study is offered as a contribution to the current interdisciplinary reorientation of Welsh writing in English, and as an intervention in what Brian Jarvis identifies as the politics and poetics of space, especially at boundaries and frontiers. Of particular interest to me, are the ways in which maps emerge for 20th century Anglophone Welsh writers as ways of both embracing and contesting geographical and cultural emplacement, in other words, as modalities of cultural and political identity. Another aim of the book is to re-territorialise Welsh writing in English and expand the cultural spaces in which an Anglophone literature designated Welsh has hitherto been allowed to take place. In this lecture, I want to focus on the distinguished author, poet and painter, Brenda Chamberlain, whose hybrid creative identity has recently come back into sharp critical focus following the centenary of her birth in 1912. I want to focus on Tide Race, 1962, her fabling autobiographical account of her time on Bardsey Island in Welsh, Anis Entli, off the Llyn Peninsula in North Wales. I want to scrutinise Chamberlain's complex archipelagic geographies and gauge the layered emotional geographies of her work, an enterprise that is part of the emotional turn in the social sciences. Having briefly encountered Bardsey, known as the Island of 20,000 Saints, 
1945, when she crossed the Sound with a Polish friend, Brenda Chamberlain, now divorced from the engraver artist John Petz, visited again with her partner Jean Vanderbil during the harsh winter of 1946 and established a home on the island in the spring of 1947. Jonah Jones has suggested that she came to the island part wounded in some way, socially bruised, certainly, and emotionally thirsty. She would remain a permanent resident on this beautiful, but often utterly forbidding island until the late 1950s. I suggest that throughout her oeuvre, Chamberlain insistently maps those aspects of her gender, sexual, cultural and imaginative identity that were permanently under pressure onto interconnected island spaces to form a series of charged archipelagos or chorographies, the term for specific cartographies. As practical instruments, talismanic forms, metaphorical figures and indeed heuristic tools Maps were crucial aspects of her prolonged meditation on the condition of annihilment. To put it less expensively, for Chamberlain, cartography is a modality of life-writing. From the start of her career as artist, poet, writer and dramatist, one recognises her compulsion to reflect on boundaries both hard and permeable, on the condition of islandness, and on the constant need she felt for what she called communication across deep water. As we'll see, her actual and imagined island coordinates range from the lyrical ethnoscapes of J.M. Singh's Aran and the Isle of Man, she was Manx and Irish by blood, Welsh only by birth, to the humpbacked Bardsey of Tide Race, and the moated German landscapes and border zones of her eerie, genre-splicing Cold War romance, The Watercastle, 1964. From here, during the 1960s, she plotted her world along a deepening southeasterly axis to the Greek island of Idra, onto which she mapped her psychologically brittle self in the lyrical journal Europa Vines, 1965. Her remarkable classical absurdist play, The Protagonists, a response to the right-wing colonel's coup in Greece in 1967, extends the map further east to the prison island of Leros, near the Turkish coast. She continued to map conditions of emotional incarceration back in her native Bangor, North Wales, to the very end of her life, so tragically cut short in 1971, by an overdose of barbiturates. I want to approach Chamberlain's tide race via two suggestive examples of her graphic cartography. In the National Library of Wales are two coloured sketch maps of Bardsey Island, catalogued under the title given at the head of one of them, Winter Rhythms in Island Life. Both inhabit the hybrid space that Chamberlain as artist-writer spent her creative life exploring, the interface of graphic art, literary discourse and cartographic inscription. Their suggestive compound notation offers an emotional and psychological chart of Chamberlain's response to life on this deluding scrap of rock and turf 
as she referred to Bardsey, at the end of Tide Race. In the first, rather sketchier, chart, the island is plotted centrally in relation to the western tip of the mainland Llyn Peninsula. Her chart is an image text that articulates what Baldacchino has called the dialectic of islands, the anxious balance between roots, R-O-O-T-S, and roots, R-O-U-T-E-S, between incarceration and, in Chamberlain's phrase, salutation to the shores of worlds. The dotted lines traversing Bardsey Sound and St George's Channel in various carefully plotted patterns on the map are labelled Possible Landing of Men, Not Boat. They represent the choreography of the Bardsey craft as it negotiates the fierce tide races of the potentially treacherous sound. Implied in the flurry of dotted lines is the horror of being map-less. Possible landing. Chamberlain is careful to emphasise the contingent nature of these projected lifelines to the mainland. These perforated lines across turbulent water also enact fantasies of female passage that Chamberlain had already explored in her published prose, which I'll come to later. As Chamberlain's annotations adrift on the white tide of the map text make plain, everything depends on the state of the tide and the state of the sea. The map charts acts of strained watching across bodies of water. It asks us to join Chamberlain in looking westwards from the safety of her house, Carreg, denoted by a black square at the very centre of the island, out to the Irish Sea and southwest to Carreg er Honui, the rock whose shape mirrors in miniature that of the island as a whole. This form would become a haunting emblem for Chamberlain as she moved away from figurative representation towards what I would like to call cartographic abstraction. Towards the end of her life, she would declare, I don't make paintings in the conventional sense. I make talismans. At the northeast tip of the island and on Bardsey Mountain on the eastern coast, black circles mark lookout points where one can tell the state of the sound and judge the likelihood of death by water, one of Chamberlain's central motifs. This is a map encoded with the tensions of a sensibility on the stretch. More expansive archipelagic vistas and alignments are also sought by this map. Chamberlain notes that the Wicklow Hills in Ireland are about 40 miles west. Encircled by the north, south, east and west of the compass points, the island form she has drawn becomes itself a huge compass needle pointing southwest towards South America, towards the shipping lanes. Moreover, in its linguistic miscegenation, Guilans, Bardsey, Henthluin, Truina Guidel, the map also offers a linguistic choreography that identifies this ground as culturally contested space. Further dotted lines link Chamberlain's house to the southernmost dot, T. Petha, home of William and Nellie Evans, fictionalised as Jacob and Rhiannon Lloyd in Tidrace. 
The path from Chamberlain's house to the lookout post on the north coast gives another black dot a wide berth. The double farmhouse called Nant, occupied by Thomas Tum Griffiths, prototypes for the tormentor Cadwallader Thomas and his farm Pant in Tidrace. Chamberlain's stippled lines can therefore be seen to sketch bonds of attachment and antagonism that divide her island space into zones, triangulating the island feud she described as handed down almost without variation from year to year. In a strikingly literal way, the Lean Peninsula, shaded green at the top right of the map, reveals the extent to which cartography, despite its claim to scientific objectivity and universality, is always local and partisan. The lozenge pattern of the tablecloth covering the very surface on which Chamberlain was working on Bardsey Island when she drew the map is clearly visible as a tracing. The second Winter Rhythms chart, which we can date to Chamberlain's final years on the island, is another composite text in which discursive prose flows around a coloured, annotated map of Bardsey. The prose runs as follows. Winter Rhythms in Island Life Not so long ago on such an isolated sea rock, the rhythm of life was an all-embracing pattern, a communal pattern, in which work and play were closely shared by all inhabitants. On Bardsey, owing partly to the coming in of new blood from outside on a permanent level, and from the transitory coming of people of many different walks of life, people imagine a lot of romantic moonshine about islands, talking of complete freedom. Actually, it is a life of strict behaviour, self-discipline, self-reliance, and duty to one's neighbours. A highly civilised code of behaviour that evolves elastically to fit new situations. Our sense of custom and taboo is extremely highly developed. For instance, boat crossings. Men only to the lighthouse except in strict emergency, illness or boat overdue. Open mainland community, endless variations in behaviour. On an island in wintertime the patterns are constant, but constant only to each house. In eddies, Life centres round the new child, the mother and child, the fire, the daily visit to the grandmother, the father and his animals, his garden, his occasional work at the lighthouse. Generically and stylistically, this little essay is characteristically hybrid. Its poetic title offers a narrativised, lyrical opening befitting a folktale. The idiom, however, immediately cedes to anthropological discourse, communal pattern, new blood, transitory coming. The phrase sea rock conjures the very imaginative fantasies, or bourgeois idealism, or naive neo-romanticism, that the passage goes on to decry as romantic moonshine. And in Chamberlain's account, aboriginality contends with outsiderness, Settlement with transhumans, freedom with strict behaviour and self-discipline. This intriguing island testament goes on to outline not merely a practical division of labour, 
but also a gendering of island space according to the internalised imperatives of custom and taboo. The lighthouse is an exclusively male site, just as the boat crossings mapped in the first Winter Rhythms map were strictly gendered. Such gender anathemas prompted contesting female fantasies of action that were given reign in Chamberlain's prose and poetic works. This gendering of space is also registered on the map alongside Pen Christin, the headland to the south of the mountain, which Chamberlain designates as the lookout for boat, women or women and children. This now is female space, the site of fretful female watching and waiting, a paradigmatic, fated and fateful stance adopted and contested by so many of Chamberlain's fictionalised selves. Another female space, or rather a space of shifting gender identities, is marked on the map. The Seal Cave, that nodal point of Tidrace and of Chamberlain's lyric poetry. This is resonant perimeter space, both rock and sea, where reality and history are transmuted into myth, the human and non-human commune, and gender and sexual identities are fantastically porous. While Chamberlain's friendly neighbours, Jane and Eddie and Nellie and Will, are plainly named on the map next to symbols of their dwellings, her island antagonist, Tom Griffiths, is on this second map given a satirical alias, Playboy of the Western World, thus transforming the chart into a literary map. Tom Griffiths is mapped onto self-mythologising Christy Mann, the opportunistic individualist of Singh's play. The Mayo-Aran world of Singh is summoned and rooted here as place, text and person, revealing the Irish genetics of Chamberlain's fictions of her own Western Isle. Indeed, I see Chamberlain's representations of island space in Tidrace as being insistently mapped onto Singh's cartographies of Aran, Wicklow and Mayo, to the extent that Bardsey becomes a cultural palimpsest, gesturing westwards to Irish ground in an act of intertextual cartography and archipelagic accommodation. The three plays, The Shadow of the Glen, Riders to the Sea and The Playboy of the Western World, together with The Aran Islands, offer Chamberlain compelling templates for her portrait of island existence. Clearly, this is not to say that Chamberlain's Bardsey is not its own unique environment. Rather, it is to emphasise that Singh, and for that matter subsequent literary charts of Irish islands by such writers as O'Flaherty, O'Donnell, O'Sullivan, O'Crohn, and in particular Robin Flower, could not be easily elided. Anthony Conran, one of Chamberlain's most nuanced critics, has, however, forcefully articulated a contrary view, arguing in 1972 that a comparison with Singh yields little. Conran claims that Chamberlain did not share Singh's ethnographic interests, and that the Bardsey Islanders were not remnants of a tribal past like the men of Arran, but a relatively heterogeneous collection of fairly recent colonists. I'd suggest Conran's categories are too narrow to allow Chamberlain's Hiberno-Cambrian alignments to emerge. 
Brenda Chamberlain found in Singh's plays and in the complex cultural anthropology of the Aran Islands a model for a subversive choreography in which national myths of belonging are submitted to rigorous critique. Further, Singh showed Chamberlain how bounded, marginal territory could be the very ground of the pan-European imagination. As Chamberlain puts it in Tidrace, Bardsey Island has succeeded in making me love mankind, crowded Piccadilly, quaysides, foreign cities, exotic fruits, faces, gatherings, Le Corbusier's architecture. Singh's anthropology of Aran was also a literary lesson in how to incorporate the mythological within a sceptical frame of reference, and how to demystify the island self in the very act of yielding self-consciously to an atavistic Celticism and the essentialist discourses of primitivism and eroticised Orientalism. As Singh writes, their red bodices and white tapering legs make them as beautiful as tropical seabirds as they stand in a frame of seaweeds against the brink of the Atlantic. Moreover, I suggest that Chamberlain found in Singh's plays, which, as Una Frawley has emphasised, initiated the Irish woman into the drama in a new and significantly vocal way, a template for feminine tragedy, in which female agency struggles to assert itself against constricting folk and nationalist traditions. What Bonnie Kime Scott has identified as Singh's feminine models of creativity would certainly have appealed to a writer who was forging a new writing space for herself at this time. Chamberlain would also have recognised in the Aran Islands a carefully drawn gender map of the Aran Isles, with a cliff top as much as the hearth emerges as a female maternal space of emotional distress. She could relate directly to Singh's isolated watching females, in particular the central figure of Riders to the Sea, whose prototype was the old woman of Inishman, still weeping and looking out over the sea in the Aran Islands. Chamberlain's resistance to a bourgeois mapping of Bardsey as a national or nationalist symbolic, masculine or feminine, can also be said to bear a Singian signature. As for form, Robin Skelton charts in the Aran Islands a movement from a rather low-key meditative coherence to a much more vivid fragmentation. This holds true not only of Tidrace itself, but of Chamberlain's continuing experimentation with the discursive strategies of the journal in works post-dating Tidrace. Chamberlain's pen drawings, which exist in creative counterpoint with the text of Tidrace, are graphic riffs or fractals on a cartographic theme. In these drawings, material objects such as fish, rocks and shells surrender to the flattening meta-perspective of cartography. Also, map forms are given a multi-dimensionality, eroticised as hauled, spotted and cleft. Each icon communicates suggestively with the adjacent text, which is itself islanded in discrete numbered sections that visually enact the condition of annihilment on which Chamberlain meditates. M. Wynne Thomas and Tony Brown see the cosmos of Tidrace as characterised by sexual and gender confusion, and Chamberlain herself as 
ever a questionable woman in the limiting terms of her day. Certainly, Island Space in Tide Race becomes a theatre for extraordinary performances of multiple gender identities and transgressive desire, mapped by the cartographic imagination. Section 5 of Part 1 of Tide Race sees Chamberlain in the company of one of the English outsiders on the island, enacting a fantasy of birth and infantile return to the mother, high up on the cliff. I inserted myself in the entrance and wormed up into the darkness of the narrow cleft. When it became so constricting that I could push no further, and when head was bent to the breast by the roof, I cautiously put out my arm into the dank air, to find that at full stretch I could feel inside the deep nest made of grass stems and wool. Three, four, five pulsating heads. Their beaks gaped wide in a clamour for food. Carefully I passed one chick down for Stuart to touch. After it had been returned to the nest, we retreated to the rocks below. Here, Chamberlain is at once the mother in childbirth, delivering midwife, and returning child. In psychic terms, the rock cleft is at once prison and sanctuary. Peering through a narrow fissure, down into the fabled, fabling seal cave, Chamberlain then sees a seal cow. Suddenly a bull seal emerges, patrolling his harem, Smooth and black as oil, nine feet of solid flesh, his black bull head dripping. The description summons the sexual presence and pent-up violence of her real-life island antagonist, Cadwallader, significantly nicknamed the Bull Neck. Also called Caliban Cadwallader in Tide Race, he plays the brutish manfish to Chamberlain's Miranda. Bardsey is thus mapped onto the island of the Tempest, that hybrid space of magic and political terror, sexual desire and regulatory control, exile and colonial anxiety. Following the birth fantasy on the cliff, Chamberlain carves out for herself a strange personal folklore of human-animal metamorphosis. We learn how the seal cow takes the lonely woman living on a desert beach without husband, without children, down to her deepest roots, nurtured on legend and fantasy. This is a cultural return ad fontem that goes hand in hand with a maternal instinct that turns transgressive. One day the seal cow said, So great had been my desire to be a mother, that I stole a baby seal, silken-haired and innocent, from a rock that spray blew over. It screamed with the voice of any human child. The bereft cow roared and came up from the surf to beat my door and windows with her flippers. After a time, my adopted child grew listless. A fight went out of it, and at last it pined away, dwindling inside its long fur. It died. Then, because I feared the vengeance of its real mother, I went to live far away from the seal's breeding ground. 
mapped onto the folktale, I suggest, is the psychic turbulence of childless Chamberlain's cultural unbelonging, maternal desire and post-war disillusionment. She continues with a remapping of her failed marriage to the artist John Petz, absent perforce from their home in the mountains of Snowdonia during the war. Was it your baby I stole sometime in a former life? She asks the seal cow, before rooting deeper in legend for another uncannily layered narrative. But one night I went to the shore to gather driftwood by the moon's light. A bull seal had risen from the sea and lay resting on a rock. He was singing with a human voice, an old song. I am a man upon the land, I am a silky in the sea. The shock of it made me scream, and hearing me he gave a great bellow of disgust because I had seen him as he really was, and flapped away into his true element, away from me forever. Thomas and Brown are right to claim that Tide Race affords examples aplenty of Chamberlain's borderline mental states. The lookout posts over the angry sound, logged on the first Winter Rhythms map, are nodal gendered sites throughout Tide Race. They are the points from which the island boat is watched going into the offing, always to the lamentation and foreboding of those women left behind. This vista becomes a compulsive psychological aperture through which Chamberlain frames her creative and emotional health. As I've suggested, such lookouts are also coordinates that connect Bardsey to Aaron, offering Chamberlain platforms for what Kate Holman has called her Celtic keening spirit. Tide Race is a moving meditation on the condition of the female watcher, fated, it seems, to be forever associated with the memorialization and verbalization of grief in perimeter space. The book also articulates Chamberlain's struggle against this deathly role, and thus against the model found in Singh. The Pen Christin vantage point, recorded on the second Winter Rhythms chart, is verbally mapped in Tide Race in a tour de force set piece in which life writing is channeled into a visionary mode. Chamberlain positions herself in a space of grey watchers among grey stone. Suddenly the self is disorientatingly doubled, mythologized, classicized, made singian. The writing fluctuates tidily between vision and ethnographic record. I have seen her on other nights when we have been returning over the sea. The shrouded figure standing motionless in a corner of the cliff. High on the mountainside, over the white, the wine-dark-red, the muscle-blue ramparts. She is not this or that familiar woman of the island, but a symbol. Monumental in patience, the woman watches the sound. This is a woman of the island, shawled in garments like a nun's, with face almost yellow in pallor, her grey eyes large and clear, black-lashed, over them arch thick-haired brows that meet at the root of the primitive nose. She has the face of one haunted by the imminence of death. 
But however weak in health, strength of custom and the power of love draw her feet up the hill path through the bracken to the place where she has the extent of the water between the isle and the mainland. Here, precise topography is a theatre for gendered allegory, life-writing, a keening lyricism whose tones are partly sings, and anthropological record. These are suffused with visionary psychodrama and Chamberlain's own Welsh island gothic, through which she seeks both to confirm her own insertion in this female death equation and to write herself out of it. The dotted lines over Bardsey Sound in the first Winter Rhythms map inscribe not only the possible landings, as Chamberlain calls them, of the Bardsey menfolk, but also personal fantasies of passage between homeland and outland. The fraught voyage across the sound that she imagines in Tidrace first appeared as a short story, The Return, in the September 1947 issue of Life and Letters, at the end of her very first summer as a Barsi resident. In that earlier piece, Chamberlain triangulates the relations between the consumptive Captain Alec Morrison, his wife Keridwen, who had refused to live on the island but whose return is imminent, and Bridget Ritzin, who is emotionally and physically involved with the ailing Morrison, and thus the subject of the filthy jokes of the mainland village. Bridget's solo passage back to Alec across perilous Bardsey Sound, which becomes a space for distressful self-analysis, but how have I sinned? I didn't steal another woman's husband, is the cultural taboo around which Chamberlain's triangulation of emotional lives is drawn. My dear Mrs. Ritson, no woman has ever before navigated these waters. Why, even on a calm day, the Porthbachan fishers will not enter the race. This early in her Bardsey life, Chamberlain was already imaginatively contesting the gender roles she was later to record and challenge on the two Winter Rhythms maps. In the short story, it is the woman who is the voyager, the man, the deathly watcher. He will be standing in the door, wondering that I do not come. And yet the pull of contemporary normative constructions of the female's domestic role asserts itself throughout. When you get home, will you come to me, be my little wife? The voyage across the sound is haunted by the phantoms of Alec and the vengeful Keridwen, and has the quality of nightmare. Surely the story dramatises anxiety regarding Chamberlain's move to Bardsey. Sublimated here too, clearly, is a fretfulness regarding Chamberlain's unmarried partnership with Jean van der Biel in the wake of her failed marriage to John Petz. Bridget Ritzin safely makes landfall, though not without much trauma, which includes an encounter with a siren-like seal cow and a dream vision of an ascent of Bardsey Mountain under a sky dripping with blood. Towards the end of the story, she stands naked in Morrison's kitchen in the early morning light, her body a sensual island form. Little channels of moisture ran down her flanks. Water dripped from her hair over the points of her breasts. He watched the skin stretch over the fragile ribs. He touched her thigh with his fingers. Almost a despairing gesture. 
Emotional and physical fulfilment are denied, however, as Bridget lies down beside the ravaged Alec in a deathly bed. Here, Chamberlain's revisionary gender cartography of Bardsey sound culminates in a ghastly map of the body. His face was bleached, the bones too clearly visible under the flesh, his face was like a death mask. What will become of us? What will become of us? It is an autobiographical fantasy, in which a power beyond the protagonist's control, beyond the socially constructed proscriptions of island life, death itself thwarts female desire. Tidrace remaps the story as first-person life-writing. While it preserves the fantasy, and it was emphatically a fantasy, of lone female passage, it significantly alters the emotional tenor of the original story by concentrating on two, not three, human coordinates, the personae of Chamberlain and her partner Jean. However, the emotional complexities and sexual fantasies of The Return still haunt the tale. Accompanying the retelling in Tidrace is one of the most disturbingly ossific pen drawings in the book, a piece of bardsy-shaped driftwood or bone, shadowed and hollowed out. To conclude, then, as Duncan Campbell has recently noted, it looks like we're all psychogeographers now. As commentators have said, literary critics' negotiations with what used to be called the politics of landscape have in recent years become more authentically informed by the insights of social geography. In turn, imaginative writers, authors of creative non-fiction and indeed literary critics and theorists have offered social geographers rich enactments of the ways in which space, always necessarily discursive and textual, conditions our emotional and intellectual lives as solitary and social animals. That equation was recognised, smartly conceptualised and movingly reimagined by Brenda Chamberlain throughout her career. You have been listening to Professor Damien Walford Davies in the UCD ScholarCast series on the literatures and cultures of the Irish Sea. A transcript of this lecture is available for download at www.ucd.ie forward slash scholarcast.